All right, so hello everyone. Um, it is Shelby Cook and Neve Brook here, your filmies journalist, critic, film critics. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, this you is, can imagine the press passes around our necks. Yeah, yeah, imagine the, the pink press passes. Let me just say, <laughs> I think the BFI was influenced by us, I'm just saying. Oh, definitely. Um, but this is going to be a special episode just with the two of us um, and we're going to be talking about kind of like what we just alluded to the press um, passes that we did for the London Film Festival so both of us were accredited as press um, at this year's BFI London Film Festival um, and we're going to talk about some of the films that we enjoyed um, kind of giving you some short reviews um, just to give you an idea when and if these films ever do come out into the cinemas, give you sort of an idea of which ones to see um, and which ones to look into more. Um, so Neve was our resident London <laughs> person. So she actually got to go down to London to see um, all of the hubba baloo that goes on uh, with the I festival. Did. Tell us about Absolutely. It was I said to Shelby earlier on, it was one of the most hectic, manic, stressful weekends I've ever had, but also one of the most amazing weekends I've ever had. I felt, you know, very cosmopolitan. I had to go to a oh. very swanky hotel to get my press pass. And I was like, hi, I'm press. And they were like, it's just me <laughs> here. I felt very cool, but it was, it was amazing. I've never been to an in-person film festival. My first experiences were all last year online so this year it was just so cool and to see I'd never been to a cinema full of cinema fans mm -hmm. and it's such a different experience everyone clapped there were big <laughs>, laughs like it's such an amazing experience to be with people that just get it mm -hmm. it was it was so so cool that's always what I've I love about the film festivals because I've always gone to the London Film Festival I think I've gone for like the past six years in a row um, obviously last year I did it all online, but last year was the first year I actually did press. The other times I just bought like a general admissions ticket. Mm. Um, and the first time I, the very first time I went to the film festival, I got a gala opening night um, <laughs> ticket. And like, it was so swanky. You like walk down the red carpet with all the people, all of the cast and crew are there. Like the press people are taking pictures. It was so dramatic. And I was like, oh my God, this is the most exciting thing that's ever happened to me in my entire life. <laughs> And it was so cool. And then two years ago in 2019, I went and saw a film and I went into the toilet to use the toilet, obviously after the film. And I came back out and then Mike Lee, like acclaimed British <laughs> film director is just standing there. Just like, and we're both just staring at each other. Like, and like, I kind of was like, that's Mike Lee. But then I was like, okay. And then I just laughed. That was the most bizarre experience I've ever had in my life. But like, that's what happens when you're at a film festival. You just see filmmakers everywhere. And it's just like, it's really, it's really cool. And it's definitely something I think anyone who enjoys films should experience like a real proper film festival, because it is a really cool thing to do. Oh, 100%. I have a completely different story. Oh, no. A lot less glamorous than yours. <laughs> but I was trying to find a way to Swiss. So if you're press, anyone who wants press in the future, the way it works is you're not guaranteed, you know, a ticket to a screening. You wait until the day and you go and ask politely, can I have a ticket? And they might have one for you. 
and I was trying to smiz, swiz my way into Spencer and I could not find the box office I just could not find it I was getting really manic I had a little suitcase I was wheeling around and it was all very hot and um I accidentally walked on the red carpet in my way and trying to find the BFI Southbank and so I for like three seconds stood in the same spot as Beyonce yeah Jay-Z Idris Elba I felt cool and then the security guard was like excuse me can you just can we can, can you just follow me I was like yes of course in those three seconds you were the main character I was it was, it was my moment to shine it, it was your moment to shine absolutely <laughs> um so do you want to talk about the films that you saw and sort of your opinions on them and your thoughts? And Yeah, of course. I've just realized it's kind of worked out. Mine were the in-person films and yours yeah. have been the in-line. So it's kind yeah. of worked out perfectly. Yeah, so I'll do it in the order I saw them. And the first one I saw was The French Dispatch by Wes Anderson. And I'm a big Wes Anderson fan. I love those kind of surrealist films that anyone that's ever listened to our podcast knows. Um, and I loved it. I loved it. I was hooked from the second it started. It feels like Wes Anderson, what he's doing, like doing what he does best. It's a series of vignettes. So it's like three large vignettes and like two smaller ones, which is quite different for a storytelling. Usually yeah. it's one sort of narrative, mm-hmm. but it worked so beautifully. It was just so compelling. Like granted, there's been a lot of like criticism that you can't really engage in the stories. Mm. But that's the whole point of a vignette. Well, I'll also jump in there because one of the films that I saw was also a vignette type of, it was three stories, um, three different stories about three different sets of characters all played by the same actors. And I'm assuming that's that's, cool. That's the same thing that like the French is right. Um, And I actually found that with that film, that film was called um, The Wheel, hold on, Wheel of Fortune (laughs) and Fantasy. And it was directed by, I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce, to pronounce his name because it's Japanese and I'm going to mess it up and I'm going to be embarrassed. So um, the director of Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy also had Drive My Car, um, which I'll talk about later at the festival. Um, but he's this, he works a lot in trilogies. Um, so he has three sets to each of his films that he does. Um, so this Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy was really interesting because it had those three different stories and you could see the ranges of all the actors and how great they were in all these different characters. But I will say that the first one was definitely the most compelling. And by the time yeah. I got back to the third one, I was kind of like over it. See, I found with the French Dispatch, all of them were odd because it's Wes Anderson, of course it's going yeah. to be. But that's what's so amazing that you're constantly like, you're not spoon-fed with Wes Anderson. You know, the shots are gorgeous, but you have to sort of work with him to understand what's going on. And I loved it. And I've I've enjoyed a lot of films this year, but there's not been a film that's come out thus far that's made me go like, whoa. I love (laughs) it. It's not a particularly sad ending, The French Dispatch, but I was welling up that it was over. Aww. I I loved it. I gave it like five stars, genuinely. It's close to beating Grand Budapest in my opinion and Grand Budapest is one of my favorite films I loved it really really worth a watch I'm jealous because you got to see the Tilda, the 20 million Tilda Swinton movies that premiered at yeah, the <laughs> one of the 20 million there's like literally five Tilda Swinton movies at the festival this year and I didn't get to see one 
<laughs> she was so good in it. She oh, is like the narrator her. of the first vignette and she is yeah. so fantastic. Um, next, I saw Spencer, which was completely manic trying to get in. <laughs> I didn't really know a lot about Spencer sort of going in. I knew it had a lot of hype and the trailers had really intrigued me, but I didn't really know what it was going to be. And Spencer sort of tells the sort of over Christmas, so it's Christmas Eve, Christmas Day and Boxing Day, and it is the last Christmas before Charles and Diana split. Mm-hmm. And you sort of stay with Diana throughout most of it, and it's her mental state. It is her dealing with her sort of bulimia, her anorexia, her complex mental health issues, whilst also trying to be a mother and dealing with, you know, the royals. Mm-hmm. It was wonderfully surreal which I wasn't expecting there are real surrealist moments and it kind of is that mania of Diana's brain like what she's going through weirdly funny in a lot of places I was not expecting to laugh and the whole cinema was like roaring with laughter in a lot of places because the moments with William and Harry are just so charming (laughs) those child actors were really sweet um it's dark obviously there are a lot of dark themes the only gripe I have with it is that I don't know how many liberties it took with Diana's story and I don't know a lot about it but I don't know what was real and what was not and I feel especially at the moment there's a lot of things going around about Diana. Diana's very trendy and I think a lot of people are kind of forgetting that she's a real Real person. person. Just let her rest in peace. (laughs) Yeah she had a lot of complex mental health issues and um, obviously it's explored in that but I feel I don't know I feel like if it come out any other time I wouldn't have felt that way but because there are so many Diana things I think it's more overt if you know what I mean yeah and I I did really really enjoy it I'm I'm actually really surprised because first of all I am not a Kristen Stewart fan and I know that's (laughs) gonna get me hate that's gonna get me beaten up but I just don't like her I just feel like she is just Kristen Stewart. She can't play characters. She's just Kristen Stewart. <laughs> and she has she all was these- really good. And see, there was one film that I have seen her in where she was in probably in a scene for like 10 minutes and it was actually compelling. So I Snow know White that- and the Huntsman. <laughs> what? Snow White and the Huntsman. Oh, uh, it was um, <laughs> I don't re- I don't remember what the movie was called, but it was at the London Film Festival. And um it was just, she was in it for like 10 minutes. And I was like, oh my God, she can act. She's not just, ha, 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 ha. Like, I hate that. I hate that noise that she makes. <laughs> but like, so I'm, I'm compelled to see it, to see how she does. But I don't think I will like it just because I really can't get past just seeing Kristen Stewart yeah. in any role that she, she plays. really does lose herself in the role. Um, I don't know if people are ever going to watch the clips of this, but she relies on the, um, yeah, a little too much. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to audibly describe that. You know, the, the shoulder the Diana look. down. Um, she does that one too many times, but I still think it's Oscar worthy, like Oscar nominated worthy. Like she really does lose herself. And, you know, she, you can tell she did a lot of work for this one. So it is well worth a watch and better than Jackie in my opinion. I, ne- I never gelled with Jackie, I didn't this like one I actually either. did enjoy. I thought Jackie was really stylish, but I remember I watched it and I literally can't tell you anything about that movie, so that tells you how much of an impact it made on me. <laughs> <laughs> this one, yeah, definitely worth a watch, four stars. 
All right, what else did you see? Uh, the last one I saw was the film I've been looking forward to since I heard about it in about 2019. It was Last Night in Soho. And for regulars, again, of Film East podcasting, I adore Edgar Wright. I absolutely one Edgar Wright fan in here. I am. I love him. I've been to the BFI before to see him screen uh, Shaun of the Dead. I've been to Q&As. I love Edgar Wright and I've loved all of his work from, you know, the Conetta trilogy to Baby Driver to Scott Pilgrim. I've loved all of it. So I was like, I'm shooing to love this. And then the, uh, there was a press screening before I saw mine and the reviews were a bit muddled. And I was like, uh-oh. I'm still still gonna love this because I'm an Edgar Wright fan not everyone loved Baby Driver so of course I'm gonna love this and it started and you know I was like okay it's finding its feet it didn't work for me it really didn't oh this is so sad (laughs) it's really sad don't get me wrong I want to caveat this with it's not a bad film you know it's still enjoyable but compared to his other work where it so clearly knows what it is yeah yeah. It just felt really, like, the only way I can find it is muddled. So it tells the story of Eloise, who's a fashion designer, who has a special gift, and she can see into the past, and she sees Sandy and her boyfriend, Jack. And it's part thriller, part horror. Now, see, I was so surprised when you said horror, because yeah. it's... The way that it's marketed, I mean, I haven't seen a trailer for it, but the way it's marketed is just like, it's this beep up 1950s London Soho type of film. So I was really surprised when you said horror. <laughs> the thing is, it's not, it's really not. And it doesn't know what it is because yeah. it's this, I don't know how much I want to spoil for people who haven't seen it, but it goes from sort of one thing to another you know and then all of a sudden it quickly changes but it's even then it doesn't work because it's not been established the themes in it what it's asking you to think about um it's I don't know it's questionable so there's a it's um it plays with a lot of um female issues Mm. which is good to see because this is the first Edgar Wright film well actually the second but the first main Edgar Wright film to pass the Bechdel test in Mm. 20 years (laughs) and um Proud of him. <laughs> Proud of him. It took him 20 years. But he <laughs> got go. there. Uh, it just, I can't, it, I find it hard to describe the words. For quite um, accomplished actors as well, Anna Ta- Anya Taylor-Joy, Matt Smith, and um, Thomas McKenzie, mm-hmm. their performances were really mediocre. Oh, like, oh. Anya Taylor-Joy is a fantastic actress, as is Matt Smith. And from what I've seen of Thomas and McKenzie, she's great too. And it just, nothing clicked for me there are jokes where there shouldn't be jokes and there are characters that are just so one-dimensional and there to further the plot mm. and it just just doesn't it doesn't feel finished right which Fred can write where he's so usually meticulous in everything he does and every single gag means something and every single shot means something it just feels muddled and I was, people were laughing and I was like, why are you laughing? This isn't, <laughs> where, this shouldn't, if it's a thriller, I shouldn't be laughing in the third act. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really annoyed. I, I could go on it forever. And if we do a spoiler special, then I can probably, I don't want to spoil right. the magic. But what I will say is Diana Rigg, who plays a, a big part in the film, she was the best part. And 
um, I found her genuinely compelling. And at the beginning, she sadly died last year and oh. it's dedicated in her memory. But um, she was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I, three I find, stars. I find that a lot of films, especially if it, I mean, it's always so shocking to me when you have such incredible actors in a film and then you're just like why are these actors like so bad like I've seen them yeah this I'm a big fan of Benedict Cumberbatch and I've seen him in movies where he's just so bad and I'm just like why and like because I know he can act but it is down to the writing like if the script isn't there it truly will you know impact everything like you know the actors can't there's only so much an actor can do with mediocre lines they all felt so one-dimensional, these characters. Like, even the main character, I, I, I couldn't understand why I was meant to care for her, you know? I think Edgar Wright, because I re-watched Baby Driver in sort of preparation, and watching it again a couple years later as I've sort of studied film since, mm. it is a bit cringy. Like, I still enjoy it, and it is far, like, it's so stylish filmmaking-wise. Mm-hmm. But it, some of the dialogue is a bit, like, ugh. But even... <laughs> Even this, it thinks it's cleverer than it is. There are so many, you see them in the trailer, there's a whole sequence of where the two girls, the girl who can see the past and the girl who's in the past switch places. And it thinks it's really clever. <laughs> you can tell it's like, oh, look what we're doing. Isn't this really doing? clever? And you're like, we, we've seen this in the trailer. All of these shots are yeah. in the trailer. Do you think, like, I don't care. Well, and that's what, you know, I think the Cornetto trilogy, obviously we've talked about that because we've done an episode before on it, but the Cornetto trilogy is just so brilliant because it's not trying to be more than it is. Like it knows yeah. that it's silly. And like, I think a lot of times with Edgar Wright films, which is why I'm not really that big of a fan of his. Like I wouldn't necessarily, I think being friends with you has made me appreciate his work more, Yeah. but I, I've never seen Baby Driver just because I know that he's more style over substance. And he's yeah. really, he prefers the style over actually having a real story or anything going on. And this was written by the, um, by the woman who did 1917, which again is very much a film that is style of a substance. Mm-hmm. So yeah, again, don't take like, don't get me wrong. It's not a terrible film. I wouldn't, I wouldn't class this as a bad film. I would probably watch it again, but it's so lackluster compared to other things he's done. Yeah. All right, well, I'll move on to mine. So I did the online screening. So as press, um, it was sort of hybrid. Um, it was a hybrid, hybrid style to the press. It was also a hybrid style for um, the entire festival. So um, some of the films premiered on the BFI player. And then there was also some of the films uh, went to different locations across the UK. Um, unfortunately, none in East Anglia. Um, nope. <laughs> <really> sad. <laughs> um, we're just the forgotten children, I guess, because we're so close to London. They just like, you can come to London. <laughs> yeah. We uh, jeweled the A11. You can come down. Yeah. Um, so I did all of the online screenings. Um, online screenings were quite difficult. Um, if you, who knows if they're going to continue with this process in the future, I would hope that they would. Um, but if hmm. you were to, anyone wanted to do press in the future and you don't live in London, um, it's a really great opportunity because it allows you to watch the films wherever you are um, and you don't have to pay to be in a big metropolitan city, which is a lot of the issues with um, young people or critics in general who want to get into the industry and don't have the disposable income to take two weeks off of work. 
and go to London and live in London for two weeks, um, you know, or if you do live in London, you know, a lot of people don't have that ability to live in London, just period. Um, mm. So it's a nice opportunity because you get to um, do the online things and you get to be part of that press circle and you get a lot of like the press, like emails and stuff. So you do get some exposure doing that. Um, but it is, it is a very difficult, a very different experience um, to what you get in a, a, actually being at the festival. Um, and that is sort of like the charm of film festivals is being there with, like you said, the, the camaraderie of all the other film people and running into you know, random people on the streets and walking the red carpet and all that other stuff. Um, so it is a bit of a different experience. What I will say on the positive side of it was it encourages you because not all the films were on the online platform. Um, which was a bit frustrating, I think, for a lot of people because we all sort of um, got the press pass um, under the assumption that the majority of the films would be on the online screeners um, for the press. And there was only like, I think, 60. Yeah. Higher festival. I mean, I could have I, I could have told you that this the gala films weren't going to be on there just because those are the big films. But I'm really disappointed that there weren't, especially for someone like me, I adore British cinema and that's really why I love the London Film Festival so much because it is part of the BFI and it champions independent British filmmakers and I've only been able to see one British film in like two weeks of the yeah <laughs> so I find that really frustrating that you know but it does encourage you to watch films that you probably wouldn't pick um going to a festival and it does encourage you to watch more independent very very small independent films and that is kind of like every year when I go to a festival, I always choose like a film just based off the stills, um, sort of like how, like what the look of it is. And if I want, I'll go see it just based on that from like one of the strands. And a lot of times those are some of the best films that I see the entirety of the festival. Um, but a lot of times those films never get picked up by distribution companies. So you'll never see them again. Um, so festivals are a good opportunity to see those type of films that are really brilliant films that unfortunately there's just not a market for outside of, you know, film festivals or art house cinemas. Um, and some of the films that actually that I saw last year, um, like it's never going to snow again is one of them that I saw last year that I watched just purely on. I just like picked it. I didn't really read the plot. I just looked at the pictures and I was like, Ooh, this looks fun. Uh, and it's coming out now in cinemas and it's, it's such a brilliant film. It's so good. Um, so I would encourage anyone's listening to this in real time. I would encourage you to go. I believe it's screening at Cinema City. Uh, so I should go see it. Yeah, I would encourage you to go see it because it is. It's a really weird and whimsical and like crazy, like surrealist film, and it's just so strange, but it's just so wonderful. And that was like that's like the best part of a festival is when you find a film that you just fall in love with you know, just out of the clear blue sky. Yeah. Like, you know, I didn't like, I just sort of wandered into the screening and here I am. And now this is one of my favorite films ever. Um, but I think the best film that I saw, um, which I sort of talked about a little bit before was um, this film called Drive My Car. Um, so it's a Japanese film um, by a director who's has been to the London Film Festival quite often. Um, he has quite a small um, filmography, but I think, like I said earlier, he sort of works in trilogies. So this film, along with Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy, is part of his new trilogy, 
Um, I'm not entirely too sure what his, what the third film is that's in this trilogy. Um, Cause I'm not too familiar with his filmmaking, but this is just <laughs> like briefly looking into him. And this is definitely now after watching drive my car, I want to absolutely get more into his films because he has just such an immaculate way of engaging you and keeping you just completely entranced in the story of these characters, even though nothing's happening. Um, so Drive My Car is about this theater director who he works in this style of um, having multiple languages in his plays that he directs. Um, so his plays will are more about like the expression of the human connection more so than what language can do. Um, so it's more about the physicality of it than language because obviously none of the actors can understand each other because they're all speaking different languages. Um, so he's this theater director and his wife is a screenwriter and they have this really intense creative connection and creative relationship and they're able to feed off of each other creativity cre creatively um, but they're sort of romantic relationship is sort of struggling. She is having an affair with one of the actors in her um, show that she's writing. And in just the first 40, so this movie, I should preface, this movie is three hours long. And when I first, <laughs> I know, when I first saw that it was three hours long, I was like, there's no way in hell I'm going to watch this movie. <laughs> but honestly, it was so good. I couldn't stop watching it. And it, it just, it was just perfectly paced. It was so good. So the first 40 minutes is sort of like this intro to is sort of like epilogue or not epilogue, prologue to what's going on um, in the majority of the film. So in this 40 minutes, we meet our theater director and we meet his wife and his wife dies suddenly. Um, so he now has to cope with her death and he's never talked to her about his, her infidelity and the troubles that their relationship were having. So he has lots of this like remaining trauma. And he, two years after his wife dies, he goes to Hiroshima and this is where the, the plot really starts to form. He goes to Hiroshima um, to direct a play and it's a adaptation of a um, Chekhov play. Um, and again, it's in that multi-language style. So all of the actors are speaking different languages. So no one can really understand each other. Uh, one of the actresses in the play only does sign language um, and she does Korean sign language. Um, and it's just so, you, there's a scene where everyone's auditioning and the woman who's doing the sign language comes in and her audition is just so gripping and so enticing. And you honestly, while watching this movie, I didn't want to look away. So I was watching this movie because obviously with the online screeners, I still work. So I have to go. And um, I was watching them while I was getting ready for, for work in the morning. And like, I just didn't want to stop watching. Like I didn't want to pause it. I didn't want to do anything. It was so enticing. I think the actors were just so incredible. And from my understanding, this director, like the director of the film has this very specific way that he directs his actors uh, where they do a lot of just round table readings of the script without actually doing any physical acting. Um, and that you sort of see that process in the, the theater director in the movie. And it's just this really wonderfully paced, beautiful film. Um, and it has a lot of these really quiet moments that, and a lot of moments of like driving. So the driving is 
he drives to practice his lines for his plays. Mm-hmm. And so when he goes to Hiroshima, the theater company that he's working for doesn't let their artists drive their cars. So he gets a chauffeur and he sort of makes, forms this bond with his chauffeur. So there's obviously a lot of sequences of just driving and not much happening, but those sequences just feel so tender and so intimate. And it's just, I thought it was just the most brilliant film. I thought it was perfectly paced. And it always like, especially when you have driving scenes, it always reminds me of um, Solaris, um, that really old classic film where it's like literally just like 30 minutes of this guy driving. And it's just like the most boring thing ever. Like I literally fell asleep, (laughs) but it was unlike that. It was this, the driving served a purpose and it just felt like everything was meant to be there. And it was just such a beautiful film. And I would highly recommend if it does ever come out to cinemas or it does go onto streaming, I would really recommend anyone seeing it um, because it is a brilliant film and don't be scared by the three hour mark because it just, it honestly flies by. Yeah, if you've all seen Bond, you can watch this. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, this is so good. This is so much better than Bond. It's a, it's, a fantastic, <laughs> it's a fantastic character study. And I think everything that the director does, like sort of comes together in this beautiful representation of what filmmaking is. It's an artsy film, but it's also like, it really brings the artistry of filmmaking together. That's what's so amazing about films is that you can have slower films. Like not every film is going to be a blockbuster, but just because they're slower doesn't mean they can't be engaging mm-hmm. and that can't evoke things from you. So you have definitely sold that from me. I want to go see it. Yeah, I, I would highly recommend it. I want to see it again. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the other film that I am going to talk about is the only British film I've gotten to see. Um, I feel like this is gatekeeping at its core, like gatekeeping (laughs) from me, of all people. Um, And it's called Boiling Point, and it's directed by Philip Barnettini, and it stars Stephen Graham. Um, He's literally been in everything at the moment. But here's the thing. So I have a love-hate relationship with Stephen Graham. I think he is in a lot of things, but he plays these very one-dimensional characters where he just gets really angry and just starts shouting. And I've seen, I've seen him, especially in a lot of TV shows where he's just like this really angry little guy. <laughs> he is. He's just screaming and yelling and there's like no reason. Like, why is this man so angry? But I think in this film, so this film, he plays a chef at a restaurant in London and he's sort of battling this uh, deteriorating domestic life and these issues that he's having um, with his wife and his kids. And you find out later that he's addicted to drugs uh, with sort of this really high pressure intensity of working in a commercial kitchen. And so it's all shot in one take and it follows him during the night, during a night, like a really busy Friday night at the restaurant. So you get a, a take of throughout this whole film, you see all of the different elements that play into running a restaurant so you see the front of house staff you see the management you see the chefs and you sort of get this bubbling of anxiety within you that's just like this is so stressful and exactly the reason why I will never work in a restaurant because I would start (laughs) crying the minute I stepped foot into one because they are so intense as a waitress in the past I know exactly what you're on about (laughs) I, I would never and that was like what was so funny is like 
I think like three of the characters had to go to the the toilets to start crying in the toilets. And I was like, that would 100% be me. Like <laughs> the minute I would start working, I would just go into tears. But it has these like really, really fantastic like microaggressions. Um, one of the waitresses is black and the one table obviously has this very racist guy sitting there. And so it, it explores these sort of little microaggressions of how racism in British society and um, sexism and classism without ever really having to say it. It's just this very simple, you know, watching this waitress order these, you know, jerks at a table who are just, you know, ridiculous. Um, mm-hmm. and think that they're so privileged because they're buying a 200 bottle, a 200 pound bottle of wine. Um, but anyway, so Stephen Graham is really, really brilliant. And I think what's so great about his performance, like I said, like, I think he, he's really great at being angry, but I've never seen him in a role where he's so controlled in himself. Mm-hmm. And he has this, and you can, you know, his character's on the brink. I mean, the film's called Boiling Point for a reason, because he's on the brink of exploding. And you can just feel like, you can see him trying to keep control. And he has this very tough calmness to him, this very scary calmness to him that, and he never once just starts screaming, starts going crazy, doesn't throw anything. And that I think is the most powerful form of anger and expression, especially on film with film actors, you know, on stage, obviously stage actors have to be more dramatic, but with film actors, because the film, because the camera is right there and you know the camera doesn't really affect much of how you would view a situation it's so difficult for actors to be so reserved and yet express so much yeah and that is exactly what he did is he was so reserved in his emotions but you knew exactly that you were just waiting for the moment that he was about to implode and it you knew it was coming you knew that everything was about to go to shit but you just never knew when it was going to happen. <laughs> and it was just one catastrophe after the other. And you're building up and you're like sitting there like, oh my God, I've either, even you're sitting there like, I can't, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> so that, I think it, that was what the brilliance of it was, is it really invoked the sense of anxiety and tension and yeah. like fear that you have in these high pressure jobs. Especially with one take, was it officially one take or was it like Birdman where it was like, um, I'm not sure. Um, so I don't know the exact filmmaking process behind it, but it was one take. Um, I would imagine it's probably, I think because Birdman sort of set the, the precedent for that, like how to make those films that make it look like it's one take. Yeah. I think a lot of filmmakers do that now. I think that's more common because people know how to do it. Um, but I'm not entirely too sure. But I think that the single take style of it really helped to build that tension. Oh, definitely, because it's that sort of theatre, you're there with them. Mm -hmm. That sounds, I I wanted to see that, and it's one of those things with this pesky online platform. Mm -hmm. If you are pressed, watch out, because it does get you. If you aren't on, so I found out 20 minutes ago when Shelby told me that this is how you're meant to do it, but I have been logging on in the mornings to see what time, because they don't publish on the online platform what times films are going to come out, they do it on the morning. They just do a countdown. They're like, now I got to do all this math to figure out what hours. Like if you click on the video, it tells you like a countdown to when it premieres. And you're like, what is this? (laughs) 
I know, and working around a part-time job as well, if you're working, it's all very confusing, but I missed Boiling Point, but I really wanted to watch it. And so if anyone listening is in charge of, you know, distributing Boiling Point and fancies distributing it in Norwich, that sounds amazing because I really want to watch it and I'm really gutted I missed it. I'll send you a message later with my sneaky little thing that I got. Ooh. For the for the audience, this is going to be a mystery. But I got to see oh, wow. this thing, and I'm going to oh, stay tuned, everyone. I'm going to share it with Neve. <laughs> I'm very excited. Um, but yeah, I think that was those were the two really big films that I enjoyed the most. That I really really enjoyed. Um, there were some other ones that I liked. Um, there's a film called Memory Box, which I really enjoyed. Which is sort of like I don't know if anyone has seen Persepolis. Um, it's sort of that same idea where it's reflecting on life as being a teenage girl in a war war torn country Um, and it was really interesting it was an interesting exploration of um, the generations of women and motherhood and daughterhood Um, so I would recommend that one I did really enjoy that Um, and there was a couple ones that kind of confused me I don't I'm not (laughs) I'm still not quite sure if I enjoyed it or not there was one called Homefront um it's german title is uh hinterland and it was just this really weird stylized like post world war 1 detective drama set in uh vienna and if anyone has seen the tv show babylon berlin it was really reminiscent of that, but I was not expecting it to be like this murder mystery type of thing. It was really weird. It was really, it was a predictable plot because you knew what was going to happen. Um, so there wasn't really much like anticipation about, oh my God, what's going to happen? There wasn't any big like penny drop moments, hmm. but it was really stylish and it was really like, I wasn't expecting it to be like a big sort of blockbuster independent type of thing. Um, but it was really stylish. It was very cinematic. Um, and it was, I think I enjoyed it. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not too sure, but I kept watching all of it. And then it made me miss my sec, my other film that I actually really wanted to watch. So I'm assuming that I liked it because I watched the whole thing. Um, so I would look out for that one if you enjoy German, Austrian cinema. Um, and yeah, so I think those were my my top hits. Oh, there was a film that was, I'll just really quickly talk about this one. There was a film that was called Cannon Arm and the Arcade Quest. And it was- Yeah, I wanted to watch this. Oh, I was not expecting much from it, but because I was watching Azor before and I just did not understand. Like, again, you're waking up at like six o'clock in the morning to watch these films and the people in those films were talking so fast and the dialogue was going by so fast and it was in a different language and I couldn't read it fast enough. So I just gave up on that one. But I started watching Cannon Arms and the Arcade Quest and it was so wholesome and so sweet. It's a documentary about these um, sort of arcade gamer enthusiasts in Denmark, I think. Um, mm. And the, the guy wants to play this video game for a hundred hours, this arcade game for a hundred hours. Um, so they're talking about like training and how they got into arcade games and like what it means to them. And it was just this really like one of their friends who's part of this pack of arcade game lovers um, killed himself a few years earlier. And so they're like, we want to dedicate this gameplay. If, you know, if we make it this hundred hours, we want to dedicate it to him. <laughs> it was so wholesome and it was so sweet. And I wasn't expecting it. I was like about to start crying. It was so sweet. It was just a really tender 
uh, lovely like documentary that was just, you know, really kind of just random and out there, but it was just so sweet. And I think, you know, I think anyone could watch it and really appreciate it because they're just big. They're, these guys are just big nerds and like gamers. And uh, one of them is like this physicist PhD student and the other one studying music or something. And so they're like these big hyper intelligent people, but it was just so sweet. <laughs> I love films awesome. like that. I love documentaries where they focus on someone with a passion. Mm-hmm. This is nothing to do with the Norwich, uh, not Norwich, oh, you can tell what I'm thinking about, London <laughs> Film Festival. Next one it was a do- documentary called, it was like Rubik's or something. And it was a documentary about Cubers. Oh. Rubik's Cubers. It was on Netflix. I don't know if it's still on there. And it's about um how Rubik's Cubes mm-hmm. give these people, you know, drive and helps autistic people, you know, communicate and make friends. It was the most amazing documentary. Oh, and I love documentaries where it just shows what makes people passionate. Mm-hmm. There was a film, uh, there was a documentary last year at the London Film Festival that was called The Painter and the Thief. And it was about this criminal who steals this artist's like paintings. And so she wants to meet him like when they find out who who stole her paintings and she forms this relationship with him like this really like tender friendship with him and she paints him and the moment where he sees his painting and he's like this really big butch masculine like you know he's had a tough life he's been like a drug dealer he's been a drug addict and he sees his painting and he just bursts into tears and it was so tender like I'm getting goosebumps right now just thinking about it but that was one of the most tender things I've ever seen in like the history of humanity like it was so sweet and I was just I loved that documentary but that's again one of the films I I don't think it got distribution rights anywhere so I think it's in no man's land but it's always so sad yeah but see that's the brilliant things and when you just pick random films at a festival and then you get to see these great films and um but they're sad that you'll never get to see them again do you have and on that bittersweet to- note, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> on that lovely note. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> do I have any final thoughts? All, well, it has been the most amazing experience, mm. you know, doing press and getting to do this because last year was all very crazy. Mm-hmm. But um, all I would say is that if anyone from the BFI is listening, um, try and make it more accessible. Yes. I mean, I... I will say I value the the London Film Festival because I think out of all of the big international film festivals, it is the most accessible. Oh, definitely. But it still has a long way to go because not everyone can afford to stay in London for two weeks or, you know, even like that that was always my problem in Norwich. Like you you you'll pay like a good 40 quid just for a train ticket to and from. And then you got to pay for the cinema tickets and you're only there for, you know, a day. You only get to see two films and it's just, it's not very accessible for people who aren't in London. Or I would at least say do a tiered press scheme Mm. because I learned this festival that even if you have the press pass and you go to the press screenings that are dedicated for press, you are not guaranteed entry. So in my tiny non-film, obviously there's a reason why they do it. I only give out the right set right amount of press passes mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's obviously not everyone can go to every screening but have a platform where press can book their screenings yeah. so they yeah. know what they can go see and what can't because if it's my like if it's your job and 
if you get there at 7 a.m. and you still can't go and see the screen, then that means someone could lose out on a commission. Mm-hmm. Like, I just think, I obviously understand why they do it, but make a platform next year that press can book their tickets and if they can't see it, then they can book the tickets that they need to see. Mm-hmm. Because the stress of not knowing if you can actually see the film is horrible. Yeah. <laughs> no, I I'm I love the London Film Festival. I think it it's so amazing that it gives people like us mm-hmm. press passes it recognizes that we are press and that is so incredible but just make it a little bit more less horrifically stressful next time thank you yeah. <laughs> thank you to everyone at the bfi for listening yeah thanks for listening <laughs> all right well we're gonna wrap up our um film festival special one-off episode um no, filmish chats yeah it takes off our pink lanyard (laughs) um maybe we'll do this again for the norwich film festival we'll see definitely give us a shout on social media if you want us to do this again (laughs) that was very influencer uh i know make sure you like comment and subscribe comment and subscribe (laughs) (laughs) um you can follow us at films uh underscore east on any of our social media platforms um, that's films with an S. Uh, I literally just got PTSD to all of the end of our filmies chats when you said at films <laughs> underscore east. Films <laughs> east. And check out our <laughs> website at film-east.com. <laughs> I mean, I definitely. Really, yeah, honestly. yeah. All right. Well, hope everyone enjoys the rest of their lives <laughs> or whatever they're doing. Yeah. Um, Neve, enjoy the rest of your evening. I shall watch and, great films. Yeah, watch great films and send us some messages because we love talking about films. We do. Bye. Bye. <laughs>